Well, please open your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 1. Ephesians chapter 1. And as you're turning there, if you would join me in a, in a short prayer in preparation for the Word. Lord, we thank You for Your Word. We ask now that Your Spirit illumine the truth to our hearts and teach us. Press it home. Conform us more to the image of Your blessed Son. And in His name we pray. Amen. Amen. Well, this morning we come to our text with uh, great joy. Chapter 1, 3 through 14 is the, is the, is the, the paragraph of thought. It's amazing text. I come to it with great anticipation because today, as we have said in earlier messages, what we're looking at here is like a treasure chest, a spiritual treasure chest. And th- this morning we will take off, or today we'll take off the lid to this spiritual treasure chest, um, which contains the spiritual blessings in the heavenlies, which belong to us. We will pick up and gaze upon such brilliant gems and diamonds as verse 4, election, verse 5, predestination, verse Five adoption, verse seven redemption and forgiveness, and verse ten, nine and ten will have the the knowledge of His will about the end times summed up in Christ Jesus. We will look in verse eleven at our spiritual inheritance, verses thirteen and fourteen. We will look at our eternal security and the work of the Holy Spirit. In this original Greek, this. Verse 3 through 14 is 202 words, one glorious continual sentence. Your third grade grammar teacher would hate this. This is, this is the, the most glorious run-on sentence in the history of grammar right here. It is probably the greatest sentence ever penned, ever written is this sentence, my opinion. It speaks of realities that are true of everyone considered a saint by God. There are no degrees or levels to sainthood. It's absolutely incredible, amazing, brilliantly stunning for every saint. These spiritual gems that we will look at are revealed to you, not by going to some self-proclaimed guru, not some special super-duper apostle, not to go up on top of a hill and hum under a tree in the wind and breeze of the middle day. No, it's uh, it's already written down for us by a spirit-inspired apostle in the scriptures. It's here for us to observe, to pick up and look at, to understand. These are objective truths, O-B, objective truths, in contrary to subjective truths. Objective means they are true apart from anyone's experience. They're just true because God says so. Subjective truth is that which is felt or experienced, our response to objective truth is subjective. In other words, peace. You have peace with God through Christ. That's objective. You have peace in your soul because you've contemplated the peace of Christ. That's subjective. Okay, It's feeling. It's experience. These spiritual treasures that we will look at here in chapter 1 of Ephesians are true of every single one considered a saint, whether you have confidence in it or not, whether you feel like it or not. The only issue is, are you in Christ? Are you converted? Are you a saint by God's calling? 
You don't know these truths that he's speaking about, such as election, predestination, uh, redemption. You don't know those things by subjective feelings. You know those by objective truth, which is the Bible. Okay, it does not change whether you feel like it or not. We will closely examine the what Paul is saying in this great treasure chest, but we also will hopefully be asking and answer the question, why? Not only what, but why is he writing this? What is the purpose? What is the goal of what's he achieving by that which he is saying here? And just to stand back and get our minds to where I think Paul is going and why he's writing what is right, why he's writing. If you went to chapter 2, for instance, and looked at verse 13 through 15, please look at this because I think this is the main thread of this epistle. And so, in verse 13 of chapter 2, notice what Paul writes here. But now in Christ Jesus, you who were formerly far off, Gentiles, have been brought near by the blood of Christ. Verse 14, For He Himself is our peace, who made both groups, Jews and Gentiles, into one and broke down the barrier of the dividing wall, verse 15, by abolishing in His flesh the enmity, which is the law of commandments contained in ordinances, so that in Himself He might, notice, make the two into, what does your text say? One new man. Okay? He's talking about unity, true unity, not, not subjective feeling unity, but the basis of our unity as Christians in the body of Christ is in Christ. Okay, okay. in chapter 3, look at verse 6, he's, re- he's letting them know what he's been shown by divine revelation, verse 6. What is it that he's been shown that it was once a mystery? To be specific, that the Gentiles are also fellow heirs, fellow members of the body, and fellow, three times, partakers of the promise, singular promise, in Christ Jesus through the gospel. That's unity. He's speaking of unity, okay? Chapter 4, 1 through 6 Quickly here, look at verse 1. Therefore, and now remember, the first three chapters, there's no exhortations, there's no imperatives. It's all indicative facts. Okay, Chapter 4 on, there's over 35 imperatives, which are commands to action. So the first three chapters are the basis of what he says in chapter 4. So he's he's mentioned unity in chapter 2 and chapter 3. Chapter 4, verse 1. Therefore, in light of that... I, the prisoner of the Lord, implore, beg you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling with which you have been called. That's the three chapters beforehand. Verse 2, with all humility, gentleness, and patience, showing tolerance for one another in love. And then verse 3, being diligent to preserve, to, to guard, keep the unity, notice, of the Spirit in the bond of peace. Okay? From there, look at, he lays out, what is that unity in? Well, one body, one spirit, just as you were called in one hope of your calling. Verse 5, there's, there's only one Lord, there's one faith, there's only one baptism. They talk about spirit baptism. Verse 6, there's only one God and Father of all who's over all and through all and in all. Okay, 
So I'm, I'm of the opinion based on this that Paul's telling me that his issue of writing, his main concern here is the unity of the churches of whom God has used him to plant. There's only one Lord, and so therefore there's only one church in, in essence, the universal church, one body. Okay. Now if you take that idea back to chapter 1, this is what he's laying out which is true of every single person whom God calls a saint. This is true of every single person whom God calls a saint. Therefore, our unity is based on this theological, spiritual unity is based on these truths here. And this is what he's laying out for us. Okay, Every one of us has been spiritually blessed in the heavenlies. And then he lays out what that is. Okay, So this is like a foundation laying out here of the Apostle Paul. So Paul begins laying this out before them. The foundation of the church, if you will, the foundation of our unity. This is true of every saint. What's he saying here in chapter 1, verses 3 through 14? Therefore, this is the foundation, the basis of our unity with one another and those around us who are of the same precious faith, who are also around the globe, including our dear brothers in Ukraine and, and Russia and all over the place. We, we worship as they do. We, we believe in the same Lord and that we have the same faith, trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. There's only one church, beloved, and this is the unity that Paul's laying out. Disunity comes when false teaching comes in and fractures and teaches against the truth, you see, and then you fracture off and you have disunity. Even though you're truly saved and you are, in essence, still in theological unity, it shows up disjointed because of false teaching and false practice. Okay, so but the basis of a outward unity is theological unity, the foundation here. Okay, all right. Um, So what we're looking at here, this is objective truth, which leads to subjective unity. We share these spiritual treasures together. So to live as though we are one. We are truly one. This is the point here. Now, observations I want to make and share with you just briefly. I have seven that I want to throw out to you that, are, that I find in verses 3 through 14 to kind of set us into this treasure chest. The little phrase, in Him, in Christ, through Him, those are prepositional phrases, 13 times that's mentioned in verses 3 through 14. Us, our, we, mentioned at least 13 times as well. Okay, so in Christ and us both mentioned 13 times. We find in verses 5 and 9 and 11, his will. God's will is mentioned three times. Okay, to the praise of, the, of his glory, as we just sang, is mentioned three times. Verse 6, verse 12, and verse 14 in this section. Predestination, and yes, it's in your Bible. Predestination is mentioned twice in this passage. So you have to deal with it. You can't just throw it away because you don't like what it says. You have to deal with it, right? I love predestination, frankly. I absolutely love it because that's why I'm a Christian. <laughs> it's worked out really good for me, <laughs> right? I love predestination. It's God being God, right? But it's in this text twice. You have to deal with it. Uh, the, the word that's translated kind intention, which really is, is really means His good pleasure, that which brought pleasure to God. That's mentioned twice in this text as well, verses 5 and 9. And you will notice the work of the Trinity, the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit throughout this text. 
So you put all that together and you come up with a sentence kind of like, what is this paragraph about? God is happily working out his will for our good in Christ to the praise of his glory. Okay, God is happily, don't forget happily, he's not reluctant in this, right? He's happily working out his will for our good in Christ for his glory. Right? I like that. He's happy. I'm happy. Christ is glorified. That sounds like living for the fame of Jesus Christ to the glory of God and the joy of all people. That sounds like, wow, that's what he's talking about, right? Um, When you look at verse 3, it's like a condensed summary of what follows. It's it's like general. It doesn't get specific. Verse 3 is like general. And then 4 and 14 is more specific. And if you could step back and see verse 3 is like looking at the treasure. That looks like a treasure chest kind of, right? Looks like a treasure chest from the outside. You're looking at it. You don't know a whole lot about what's inside. You come over here and you start explaining verse 3 and you're looking at it. Okay, you open it up. That's verse 4 through 14. What is in there, man? Right? So that's what we're doing here. That's what we're doing. Um We want to focus, and I know you already know these things, I think, to some degree, but we want to pick up each gem and look at it closely, right, that's in that treasure box. Because I, I don't want to presume on any of you that you know anything other than what you know, and I don't know exactly what that is. And as I was sharing with Max, some of my most challenging, most... Uh, most uh, most opposition in the 20 years plus of ministry that I've experienced have come from this verse 4. Right? I don't expect that here, but if it does, I'm ready. Right? I don't really care. <laughs> it's not going to change what I think. Right? I'm pretty c- cemented on this. I spent a lot of battling years in this. Um, and this is crucial to me. It's my most favorite doctrine because as you will see, it opens up all these doctrines. You can't deny this doctrine and then enjoy the blessings that God has for you. You just can't. This, sh- this shuts the door. This either shuts or opens the lid to our treasure chest. Okay? So let's read from verse 3 to 6. That's as far as I'm going to go. Right? And I'll guarantee you I'm not going to make it to verse 6. I hope that doesn't bother you. Right? But we will make it to 4, Lord willing. Verse 3, okay, remember, verse 3 now is general. Verse 4 and following is more specific. Blessed, says the NES, be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places that's added in Christ. Just as, in this way, He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world, that we would be holy and blameless before Him. In love, He predestined us to adoption as sons through Jesus Christ to Himself according to the kind intention of His will, to the praise of the glory of His grace, which He freely bestowed on us in the Beloved. Awesome. Back to verse 3. Look at where He begins. Blessed. This is a declaration of God's worthiness. B is italicized. It's added. It it should say, if it was more faithful to the Greek text, blessed the God and Father. 
It adds B to kind of help our, well, you're here, but it helps us in our language, right? The word, the word is not the same as the beatitude, blessed. Blessed are the poor in spirit, right? Those, those uh, beatitudes in Matthew 5, this is not the same Greek word, not the same Greek meaning. In the beatitudes, the, the meaning there is happy. This one here is two words brought together, compound word, and the, and the word in front that's connected means a good word, legeo, word, to speak. It sounds like this, eulegeo, which we get our word eulogy from, right? So this blessed is the word eulogy. What is a eulogy? To speak well of someone, right? To, to speak of one's worthiness, to speak of one's fame or reputation, worthy of praise, the old English word worthship is found in this, right? Worthship, which we've shortened to worship. So this text here, verse 3, Paul begins, Worthy of worship, the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. By the way, in the New Testament, this word blessed here is only used of God because only He is praiseworthy. Okay? Only He is good, only He is righteous, only He is truly merciful, only He is truly love. He alone is then worthy of praise. He is the blessed one. Okay? Now notice how Paul identifies in verse 3 who specifically we are to praise. And he, this is the source of our blessings. It says there in verse 3, the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now we've read that 600 times, if not more, right? But look up at verse 2, if you would. Verse 2 says, Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. God our Father and Jesus are equal sources of grace and peace found there in verse 2. Our Father, in verse 2, is emphasizing our relationship to God as being in His family. We are His children through faith, through grace. Okay? Alright. Notice verse 3. God is both the God and Father, not of us, but of our Lord Jesus Christ. See that in verse 3? Blessed the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now pay close attention. You go to verse 17 of chapter 1. Notice what it says. That the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory. Okay? The God of our Lord Jesus Christ. The one worthy of praise is uniquely both God and Father of Jesus Christ. This is very precise. We, we serve a very precise God, beloved. And he's written down in precise grammatical phrases and ways to portray a message. And it's for us to be careful to observe exactly what does the text say so that we can come to what does the text mean. Most people do not give much time to reading text, any text. Therefore, it's a, it's a challenge to our brains to have some crazy preacher like me slow down and try to walk you through this. But this is what I'm going to do, and hopefully in 20 years we'll be happy together. All right? <laughs> but look at what it says here. Okay? The one responsible for our spiritual treasures is God and Father of Jesus Christ. This sets our God apart 
from any other so-called God. Now follow this. The Greek and Roman gods of the day can't fit this description. And so Paul's laying this out so there's no confusion to whom is he giving credit for the blessings. It can't be said of Zeus. It can't be said of Apollos that he's God and Father of Jesus Christ. It's not true of Baal. It's not true of Moloch. It's not true of Allah. A lot of missionaries today, this is, this is infecting Christian missions today. They go to Middle East and they come back and say that Allah is the same as Yahweh in the Bible. That is blasphemy. Allah is a fake God. Allah is not God. He is not like my God. He is not God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen? So that, that's an insult. That's an assault on the truth. We are not going to go that way. Our God is very precise. Our God is both God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Allah is not the Father of Jesus Christ. Allah is not the God of Jesus Christ. He's not the God of anybody, really, because He's non-existent. The one true God who is worthy of praise is both God and Father of Jesus Christ. What does it mean, then, What is Paul meaning here to say that he is God of our Lord Jesus Christ? He is, as he is our God, so he is, he is Jesus God. Okay. Paul then is emphasizing the humanity of Jesus Christ. The son left heaven, took on flesh, became not only a man, but a Jewish man of the tribe of Judah, of the family of the King David. And in his true humanity, he relates to Yahweh as his God. He is a son of Israel. He's a, he is an Israelite. And like a faithful, righteous Israelite, his God is Yahweh. That's why he is the God of Jesus Christ. As did Mary, as did Joseph, as did David, as did you and I, he, Christ, like us, in his humanity, was a worshiper of God. Okay? You remember when he, he carried our sins to the cross, Jesus Christ did is our substitutionary sacrifice. His suffering was very real and very immense and very intense. Even greater than the mere physical was the mental, spiritual aspect of his suffering. It's known as his cry of dereliction from the cross. Remember what he cried out? My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Yeah, That speaks of his humanity. Okay, Paul goes on to say that not only is he God of Jesus, he's the Father of Jesus. This speaks of his deity. It is that special relationship within the Trinity whereby the second person is the Son, the eternal Son. While he came to earth in his full humanity, he was still deity and the Father in heaven. This speaks of oneness in essence, oneness in nature, oneness in kind. Do you remember the Jews in John 5? Listen to what here. Listen to this here. Very key text. 5.18. For this reason, verse 17, sorry. John 5.17 and 18. But he answered them, Jesus did, My father is working until now, and myself am working. Verse 18. For this reason, therefore, the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him, because he not only was breaking the Sabbath they thought, but also was calling God his own Father, making himself equal with God. 
So when you, with Jesus, what they're accusing Jesus and what they understood Jesus to be saying when he says that, that the God in heaven, Yahweh, is my own father, he is saying that I am equal with God in essence. I'm equal to God in nature. Therefore, I'm deity. Just as my son is the same essence as me, so too Jesus is the same essence as his father. We are sons through faith in Christ. We're adopted. We are innately sons. We're not in nature sons. Jesus Christ is the only begotten son. He is the unique, one of a kind son. He's of the same essence as God. All right. Back to Ephesians if you'd wandered off. (laughs) But get this, right? This. Paul is making a very precise point here that the the blessed one who's the source of our blessings is both the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, which speaks to the humanity and deity of our Lord. Okay? Very precise. Very precise. Look at verse 3, chapter 1. He goes on to say, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing. This is why we should praise him, is because of what he has done. That's what Paul's saying. Who has blessed us. This is amazing. Same Greek word used here, blessed. But here is in a verb action. It's in an adjective, blessed, in the first one used in verse 3. The second use of the word blessed is the very same Greek word, but it speaks of an action. And it's in, notice the tense, has blessed us, past tense. Something that's already happened. We bless God by speaking well of Him. He blesses us by doing well for us. He doesn't praise us. He does us good. We speak well of Him. Do you see the difference here? So, Speak well of God because he has done well to you, is what he's saying here, right? Who has blessed us. He has done us good. And notice he goes on to describe the blessings in verse 3. He says, he has blessed us with every spiritual blessing, which means every, not most, not some, but every, every spiritual blessing. That means there's nothing lacking, believer. God is not holding back. He's not, put, he's not stored away in a special box of really good stuff and you're just going to have to suffer now. The whole enchilada is for you, right? It's for us. In, in the us, he says in verse 3, who has blessed us, who is us but the saints that are mentioned in verse 2, For every believer, it is true that we have been blessed by the God and Father of Jesus with every spiritual blessing. Spiritual blessing. To move quickly through that, I think it has the idea of of coming from the Spirit. Okay, Not spiritual in the sense it's mystical or it's non-material. Not in that sense. But spiritual like um, Galatians 6.1. You who are spiritual, restore such a one in gentleness. Well, in Galatians 6.1, who is the one that's spiritual, but the one who's walking in the Spirit? 
walking under the control of the Spirit. I think what Paul is saying here when he says spiritual blessing, he's emphasizing that this blessing is not of this world, not of the natural world, not of this realm. This is of the Holy Spirit's realm. This is of the Spirit of God's realm. This is, this is a good deed done, a good work done for you by the Spirit. Notice where it took place. Look at verse 3. Where did it take place? In the heavenlies. Praise God. In the heavenlies. The abode of God and His angels. It took place there, you see. This is a very real place. It's not of or on the earth, but high above in the heavenlies. Uh, Places is added in my New American Standard for the sake of understanding, they think. Heavenly places, so places shouldn't be there in the original, but it's in the heavenlies. Okay, This is a favorite phrase of Paul. He uses it in chapter 1, verse 20. He uses it in chapter 2, verse 6. He uses it in chapter 3, verse 10. And he uses it in chapter 6, verse 12. Every one of those places speaks of a place high and above. In the heavenlies. In the heavenlies. These blessings then that he's mentioning... These good deeds of the Spirit not only come from heaven, but they're seated there where God is. Okay? They're seated there where God is. If they're of the heavenly nature and the heavenly place, they cannot be stolen by earthly. They cannot be affected by earthly. They do not rot. They do not fade away. They're of the nature of God. They're of the nature of heaven. They are everlasting. These are God's good gifts. Okay? They took place there, and yet we benefit down here on earth in history. Not only in the heavenlies, but notice the last phrase in verse 3, in Christ. He's the key to it all. He's the key to it all. You could, you could be in the heavenlies apart from Christ and not be very blessed. But in Christ Jesus, you're the object of all the spiritual blessings of God. Right? Praise God for what He has done, which has blessed us with every spiritual blessings in the heavenlies in Christ Jesus. These spiritual blessings are found in Christ, are possessed by us in Him. You are the recipients of them by virtue of His spiritual union with Christ. Apart from Him, no blessings whatsoever. He obviously is the key to it all. In Christ Jesus. God the Father has designed redemption, because that's the subject here, this way. It is only in Christ. It is only through Christ. All the brilliant gems, spiritual treasures that we will look at in verses 4 through 14 are yours because you are in Christ Jesus. And you are in Him by His doing. Right? By God's doing. Okay? It's similar of what Jesus taught in John 15 when he taught about the vine and the branches. Okay? The benefits come from the vine that is united to the branch. To be cut off, severed from the branch, you wither and die. Okay? In Christ Jesus, he is the, he is the vine. You are the branches. In Christ Jesus, all the vibrancy of God, all the eternal life, if you will, of God. He's like the sap. He's like the blood, the lifeblood that flows into the believers because by virtue of your union with Jesus Christ, therefore you are the recipient of every spiritual blessing 
That's amazing. What did you do to get into Christ? Dig, work hard, right? He placed you there. Romans 6 says you were baptized into Christ. It's the sovereign work of God. Okay? Sovereign work of God. Now, this is true. Everything we just said there is true of every saint. Everyone whom God calls saint. And this is why we should expend ourselves in the praise of God. Bless God. Praise Him for what He has done on your behalf in Christ. Okay? So do you see what Paul's saying? The beginning of worship starts with understanding that you are a recipient of every spiritual blessing. There is nothing withheld from you. Nothing. Therefore, he is worthy of praise. Is he ever not worthy of praise? No, because is this ever not true of you? No, you are always the object of every spiritual blessing. So praise Him. Praise Him. Now, this is great. Because that's, that's looking at the treasure chest. Right? The, every spiritual blessing is in there. He just told me. He has, he has not told me what it looks like. He hasn't told me what each gem does or looks like. But He's told me that in that chest is every spiritual blessing. Praise God. Look where he begins. Take the lid off. Go to verse 4. And here he begins to identify specifically the gems of blessing. Notice he begins with the glorious, wonderful, brilliant diamond of election. Verse 4, he says it like this. Just as in this manner of blessing he chose us in him before the foundation of the world that we would be holy and blameless before him. Wow. Ephesians 1, 4 is a glorious text. Notice he begins here with election. And since he starts here, beloved, I believe this is the doorway. This is the doorway, the basis of each and every subsequent blessing that follows. Not only is this itself a a blessing from God of the Spirit, but it is the means to those that follow. Okay? This doctrine then has been abused so much throughout church history, is rejected by so many professing believers, they either don't understand it, been ill-taught, or just flat-out reject it. They deny it, they try to deny it, they try to explain it away. Many treat election as a curse, bad for the church, bad for you as an individual. But if you've been paying attention, verse 3 calls it a spiritual blessing in the heavenlies, not a curse. It is a spiritual blessing. The good deed done from the Spirit begins with election. It is a truth that you would not know apart from divine revelation. Therefore, God determined it as something for our good and His glory. You would not know divine election apart from Him telling you. You won't see it in the trees. You can't see it in the clouds. right? But God told you about it. And if God told you about it, it's for your good and His glory. It's for your joy. It's to be rejoiced over. He's worthy of praise because He chose you for Himself. Verse 4, notice, just as He chose us. This, we'll pick this up and look at this word, chose or choose. It's a past action. It's in the middle voice. You don't mind grammar. 
You need, we need to go up anyway, right? There's active voice and middle voice and passive voice. This is in the middle. The Greek middle has a reflexive idea. So it's this. If you were to flesh this out according to its original text, he chose us for himself. The reflexive is himself. Okay, So it makes it very personal. Very, very personal. He chose himself, us. Now, the word chose is translated in other places, elect or election. It's two words together, ek lego, election. Ek, E-K, means out of. Lego means to speak. So literally, it means to speak out of. The idea then is to choose out of. It is to select out of. It would be like I'm going to take you two and select you out of all the rest. That's the meaning of the word. It's to select out or to call you out. Christina, I need you to come out. That's what this is saying. He chose us in him before the foundation of the world. Um, Think of this. It says that here. But does God make choices in the Bible? Is this the only place this shows up? The only place it's taught? No. As you probably know, there's there's many, many places. I wanna I wanna take you to as many as I dare, but hopefully not too many, love. She says you can become too burdensome, love, so you know. Um sometimes you just gotta bear it up and burden it, folks. Um so I hope you are ready to look at your text. I want to take you to numerous places. Not Anyway, Acts 15. <laughs> Acts 15, right? And I'm going here to show you just the natural meaning of the word. Just in case there's any confusion, I want you to see it's, it's used in a natural way, not in a theological way. Acts 15, look at verse 22. You'll see our word here. Then it seemed good to the apostles and the elders with the whole church to do what? There's our word. To choose men from among them. That's as clear as it gets, right? For what purpose? To send them to Antioch with Paul and Barnabas. Okay? So there, that's a very clear meaning of that word. To choose some men from out of all of these men to go with Paul and Barnabas to Antioch. Jerusalem. Okay? Not theological meaning, it's just, I want these guys and these guys to go. But that's the word there, to choose. Go to Acts chapter 1, verse 24. They're looking for a replacement for Judas Iscariot. In verse 23 and 24, notice, So they put forward two men. Joseph called Barsabas, who was also called Justice, and Matthias, verse 24. And they prayed and said, Lord, you know the hearts of all men. Show which one of these two you what? Have chosen. There's our same word. Okay? So they're asking the Lord, which one of these two have you chosen, selected out for yourself? Go to Acts 9, please. Acts 9, and we're going to look at the conversion of Saul of Tarsus, Apostle Paul. And look at verse 15. Our Lord says to Ananias, But the Lord said to him in verse 15, Go, for he is a what? Chosen 
Oh, there's our word again. It's everywhere. Chosen instrument of mine. God says that Paul, Saul of Tarsus, is a chosen instrument of mine. Okay? All right. There's more, and I'm going to take you to more. Go to John 6. John 6. And I'm, I, I chose these on purpose to show the breadth of how the word is used. Non-theological settings... Um, two more theological settings. God choosing and man making choose. You know, the word is, it, the word means just what we think it means. You know, and you don't explain it out any other way. That's my point. Right? Where am I going? John 6. Sorry. Verse 70. 670 of John. Look at what it says. Jesus answered them, Did I myself not? What? Oh, there he goes again, Metallic. The twelve, even Judas, wanted to use the devil. Right? But there's our word, to choose. So Jesus says, I chose the apostles. Go to John 15. John 15, 16 and 19. Same kind of thing. Jesus speaks here. This is the upper room discourse to his 11 good apostles. Judas is gone now. Verse, uh, what did I say? 16. Look at 16. It says, you did not choose me. Same word. There's our word. But I chose you. Okay? Look at verse 19. If you were of the world, the world would love its own. But because you're not of the world, but I what? chose you out of the world. Because of this, the world hates you. Notice they're not of the world because Christ chose them out of the world. Same word. Everywhere it's used. I have some Old Testament references I just want to read to you. You can write this down if you want, but I want you to hear it in the Old Testament. Okay? The Septuagint is the, translate, the Greek translation of the Hebrew, and the Greek word from the Septuagint is our same Eklego word. Okay, listen to this. 1 Kings 8.16. I, God speaking, I chose, there's a word, David to be over my people. I chose David. 1 Chronicles 28.5. David is speaking and says, He, God, has chosen my son Solomon. Okay? To be king. First Kings eleven thirteen. God says, For the sake of Jerusalem which I have chosen. So God chose Jerusalem to be the place where his temple and his abode would be on earth. Okay? God chose Jerusalem. In first Timothy five twenty one, the angels that did not fall and remain faithful to, to God are called the elect angels. Chosen angels. First Timothy five twenty one. Isaiah 42.1, which is also quoted in Matthew 12, speaks about the Messiah, Jesus, and God says about the Messiah, He is my chosen one. Okay? My chosen one. Israel is known as what? The blank of God. Chosen people of God. Israel is the chosen people of God. Deuteronomy 4.37, quote, because, uh, Moses speaking, because he loved your fathers, therefore he chose their descendants after them. 
Deuteronomy 10.15, Moses says again concerning God, He chose their descendants after them, even you above all peoples. And there you even see the emphasis is even more special. He chose you, Israel, above all the peoples of the earth. God made that choice to be a witness nation. But God made the choice. 1 Peter 2.9 is an Old Testament text, but Peter, under the inspiration of the Spirit, applies it to Christians. Okay? Christians are called a chosen race. 1 Peter 2.9, a chosen race. In that same epistle, in verse 2, chapter 1, 1 Peter 1, 2, says Peter writes to them and says, to those who are chosen. And the next verse says, the reason they were chosen was to obey Jesus Christ. Chosen, though. They're chosen, the elect. Colossians 3.12. Paul says, as those who have been chosen of God. Colossians 3.12. Now, that's like a fire hose. That's like a waterfall just drowning us. But I think my point, and I hope you get that, is that this word is wide, widely used. It's everywhere. It's used in a natural sense of a man choosing another man for a partner to go work somewhere. It's used of God to choose of angels and people and kings and places. Christians are said to be the elect and chosen. Uh, God is a God who chooses. He's a choosing God. Praise God. He's a choosing God. The testimony of Scripture then is extremely loud and clear. You cannot deny the fact. You can twist it, reject it, but you can't deny the fact of God choosing. You cannot honestly deny that fact, that God made choices. Okay. I hear that some who oppose it over the years of my life, they say that leads to arrogance, makes you arrogant. Spiritual pride, if you say that God chose you. They say that makes you prideful. Because, and this is the argumentation, God only chooses the best for himself, right? Wouldn't you? Of course you would. So they think God's like you and only chooses the best ones that they could choose, right? If you're going to go buy a car, you're going to choose the best one, right? Like the sports team, the NFL draft. You're not going to choose that 140-pound weakling there to be your middle linebacker, right? You're going after the biggest, baddest dude who's going to help your team win, right? So, to choose the best. And to say then that God is choosing the best, you, for his team, you then are saying that you are of this high quality. It makes you proud. Um, God wants you because he sees something in you, they say. There's some good quality in you, or... He sees that you're teachable and he can make you something special even though you're not so special now. Right? And he sees your potential. And he says, I want you. That's how they argue. Can I say that's ridiculous? That is absolutely ridiculous. That's ignorant of Scripture. Okay? And I'm glad you're on that same page. Two places at least. Deuteronomy 7. Alright? Because if you walk away with with thinking that I said that you are special and God can't live without you and that's why he chose you, I'm going to go take up car painting or something. Finger painting. That's not what the Bible says. Um, 
Chapter 7 of Deuteronomy, please. Chapter 7 of Deuteronomy. Moses is reminding the second generation of Israelites who've come out of Exodus. This is the children. Their parents died in the wilderness. This is the second generation to whom he speaks. And he says in Deuteronomy 7, verse 6, and 7, and maybe 8, look what he says. He says, For you, Israel, are a holy people to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has, what? Chosen you to be a people for His own possession, notice, out of all the peoples on the face of the earth. That's exactly what we've been saying. That's what the word means, to choose out from some. Look at verse 7. The Lord did not set His love on you, nor choose you, because you were more in number than any of the peoples, for you were the fewest of the people. So it's not you were so great, it's because you were so small. Verse 8, But because the Lord loved you and kept the oath which He swore to your forefathers, the Lord brought you out by a mighty hand, He says in verse 8. So we at least say this in that text. God was not moved by Israel's greatness in any sense to choose them for Himself. And if you read your Old Testament to any degree, you know for a fact there was nothing redeemable in the people of Israel. Right? In fact, I'm more like them than I care to imagine. Right? So it's grace. It's grace. From there, go to 1 Corinthians, please. In case you're just thinking that's an Old Testament thing. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, the Apostle Paul will um, remind the Corinthians, who are very well known for their spiritual arrogance and their pride and their divisions, and he will bring them to earth with this teaching. 1 Corinthians 1, pick it up please in verse 26 and following. Look at what it says. 1 Corinthians 1, 26. For consider, Paul writes, your calling, brethren, that there were not many wise according to the flesh. You know what he's saying is, look around you, Corinthians and Folsom Bible, not many wise (laughs) according to the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble, to which we all said, Amen. There's hope for us, right? He chooses. Look what he says in 27. But God has what? Chosen. What does it say? Chosen. chosen. There he goes again. God has chosen, Christine. Who did he choose? The best? The foolish. Just the, he, he chose the junker car, dude. Right? He didn't choose the Mercedes fresh off the lot. He chose the junker. Praise God. Right? <laughs> Isn't that amazing? He chose the foolish things of the world. What purpose? To shame the wise. And God has chosen. There he goes again. Second time in one verse. The weak things. Oh, I'm still in there. Praise God, right? <laughs> to shame the things that are strong. Verse 28. And the base things of the world and the despised. God has chosen the things that are not so that he may nullify the things that are. Next verse so starts with so that, tells you the purpose or the goal that no man may boast before God. 
You see, the doctrine of election is the elevation of God and his grace and the humiliation, if you will, the the bringing man low down here. And the reason that God chose them was not because of their greatness, because of their lowliness, their baseness, their worthlessness to the world. And God chose them for his own to put to shame those who think they are wise and those who think they are great in the world. Yes? Praise God. So election does not make you prideful. It makes you humble if you understand it, if you're believing it right. right. God's choice of some over others is based entirely, solely on His grace. It's unconditional sovereign election. Unconditional sovereign election. Go to Romans 9. This is most clearly seen in Romans 9. Two two places, Romans 9 and Romans 11. But I want you to see how Paul argues this point in this text. Two verses is just where I want to go in chapter 9, and it's verse 10 and 11. Look at the argument here just to see this. And not only this, verse 10... But there was Rebecca with a K. <laughs> Praise the Lord. Um, you remember her from Genesis. Also, when she had conceived twins by one man, our father Isaac. Okay? So here's a woman with two babies in her belly. Verse 11. For though the twins were not yet born and had not done anything good or bad, so that God's purpose, according to his what? Choice. Choice would stand, not because of works, but because of him who calls. Mm. Who was chosen? Jacob was chosen over Esau. Who was the first one born? Esau. The culture of the Jews at this time, the culture of that time, was that the firstborn was double-blessed. Mm. And the father's name was carried on in the business and all the double blessing, physical, material prosperity on the firstborn. Okay? And the firstborn was elevated. The second, I hope you make it. <laughs> right? Hang out with your brother and maybe crumbs from the table will feed you. You know, maybe he'll be nice to you. Right? That was the cultural norm. Who did God choose? The second born, Jacob. He chose Jacob purposely to show it's not of a cultural norm, first of all. Second of all, of the two, you and I would have chosen Esau. He had a lot more quality. He was a man's man. He went out and killed things and hunted, you know. His brother stayed home with Mama and sewed doilies or something, right? He was a Twinkie. He was. He was a girly man, as our, one of our governors used to say, right? And he was a trickster, wasn't he? He was deceitful. He had no character of quality to say, man, I want that guy on my team. Are you kidding me? But God chose him over Esau before anything to show it's not based on the works of Esau or didn't or Jacob's deceitfulness didn't keep God from choosing him. You see, it's all of grace, all of grace that he chose him. Okay. So, so election does not make us arrogant. It makes us lowly and humble and thankful. Remember, remember our Ephesians text. Blessed 
God. He is praiseworthy for what he has done. And what is it that he has done? He has chosen us before the foundation of the world. All right. Um, let's see here. So then, oh, chapter 11. Yeah, one other place. Chapter 11. Romans 11. Two verses, five and six. Notice this. Again, he's emphasizing grace and works. Verse 5, he says, in the same way then, coming off of the previous verse, in the same way, God has a remnant, you see. There has also come to be at the present time a remnant according to choice of grace. Yeah? Verse 5, according to italicized is God's, because that's obviously the subject, but God's gracious choice. Verse 6, But if it is by grace, unmerited favor, it is no longer on the basis of works. Otherwise, grace is no longer grace. Right? So there it, it, it has to be of grace or it's no longer of grace. His choice is of grace. His choice is not based on your quality, on your potential quality, on your works of any kind, good, bad, or ugly. It's entirely, solely on His good pleasure of grace. He wants to bestow on this individual all the spiritual blessings. He wanted that for you, hermano. Right? He wanted that for you just because He wanted to. Nothing in you moved Him to do that. He didn't see, oh, she's going to be a great mother and a great cook and, and whatever, you know, and I want her. No. Before any of that, he says, I want her. That is awesome. That is true. That's the Bible teaching. Okay? That's the Bible teaching. His choice, then, is free, unconditional, unmerited, No actual good or potential, no possible good you would do in the future. He simply chose to love you in spite of you, and this pleased him. (laughs) So go back to Ephesians, please. Chapter 1, in verse 4, he chose us in him. Again, Christ is the, not the, um, he chose us to be in Christ. And it's by virtue of that union in Christ Jesus. Again, the election of God is not separate from the being in union with Christ Jesus. The blessings are all in Christ, including election. Okay? Now, He chose us, saints. Remember saints from verse 1? Okay, now get this. Did, did, he, choose, did he choose you because you are a saint? No. Right? When did the choice take place? In verse 4. Before the foundation of the world. That gives me goosebumps. I mean, really. (laughs) Previous to Genesis 1, before anything existed, only the Trinity was in existence. Somewhere in that time, God chose you for himself. He made choices of individuals from out of a mass of individuals before they even existed. He chose them for himself to be in Christ, to be in a glorified, sinless way in his very presence. 
get that again. He made choices of individuals from out of a mass of individuals to be his own, to be in Christ, to be in a glorified, sinless way in his very presence in the future before there was anything yet existing that took place in the mind of God. What a mind. What a God. Wow. Go to John 17. Hold your finger in Ephesians, but go to John 17. This phrase, before the foundation of the world, is a, is a New Testament favorite phrase. In John 17, look where our Lord Jesus uses it in His, what is known as His high priestly prayer, verse 24. Look at this. He says, Father... John 17, 24, I desire that they also whom you have given me be with me where I am so that they may see my glory which you have given me for you love me when? Before. Before the foundation of the world. So the son is acknowledging the father had a love for him before there was anything in creation. In 1 Peter chapter 1, it says in verse 20, that he was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but has appeared in these last times. He's talking about Jesus Christ, the Lamb of God. God chose him to be the Redeemer before the foundation of the world, and he came into appearance in history. But the choice that Christ would be the sinless Lamb was made before the foundation of the world. Only God can do that, of course. God's choice was made before time, thus guaranteeing what it is he chose for. Yes? So whatever reason he chose for is guaranteed by the fact that the choice was made before creation and in history of timing it's starting to unfold. You see? All right. Go to 2 Timothy. And I'm going as fast as I can, beloved, but I hope... I hope this is stunning. I hope this edifies your soul. If not, I'll pray for your sin-sick, shriveled-up souls. <laughs> <laughs> 2 Timothy chapter 1. Look at verse 9. Look at verse 9. <laughs> Who has saved us, past tense, and called us already with a holy calling... Not according to our works, but according to His own purpose and grace. When was it given to us? From, yes. So that which, the, the, His purpose of grace, which was granted us, this, this decision by God to gift us with grace in Christ, notice it's always in Christ, was from before time. From before time. Well, go to 2 Thessalonians, to the right of Timothy, I think, or is it left? No, it's left. I can't remember now. <laughs> left of Timothy, sorry. Chapter 2. 2 Timothy, chapter 2. Look at verse 13, please. It says, But we should always give thanks to God for you, brethren, beloved by the Lord. Why? Because God has what? Chosen you, Thessalonians. When? When, verse 13, God has chosen you. When did He choose you? 
from the beginning. For what purpose? Salvation. For salvation. What does election guarantee? Salvation. Second Thessalonians 2.13 God has chosen you from the beginning for salvation. How? Through the means sanctification by the Spirit and faith in the truth. Glorious. Okay? All right. Now, go back to Ephesians. I'm getting closer. (laughs) Chapter 1, Ephesians, verse 4. Just as He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world. For what purpose does Paul say that God chose you for Himself? That you be holy and blameless before Him. Okay? Think about this. If God's purpose in choosing you for that, can that, can that be thwarted? Mm-mm. Can it be undone? Mm-hmm. Can't be stopped. It's guaranteed. Because it's the purpose why He began the process before time began. You see? These truths you wouldn't know unless Scripture informed you. Why is He informing us of this? It's, it's to strengthen our faith. It, and every single person, let's just say... This is, this is Christians right here, okay? Every single person hearing the same thing, showing this truth. Think of the unity found in a body of Christ that is of this opinion. This is truth. So you think the same, you think the same, you think the same on this issue. You both have a bolstered, steely backbone in faith because it's rooted in the, the election of God. Right? It can't be undone. It can't be undone. Now, look at what it says here in verse 4. He says that we, we, including himself, we of the saints who were chosen before the time would be holy and blameless. Now, we learned from previous studies, holy means set apart, distinct, unique, set apart from the common unto God, set apart from sin unto God, okay? It speaks of your character. It speaks of his, their practice, what does saint mean again? Back up in verse 1. What is a saint, literally? A holy one. A set-apart one. That's positionally, right? This is talking of practice. So what he says here, the goal of election is that you indeed would be set apart from sin in practice, not just position. Holy is fully set apart from sin. This is the idea of sanctification. Full sanctification, which has to do with glorification. This is sanctification in practice, in actual life. Because he goes on to say also in that same verse, notice, to be holy and blameless. Okay, Blameless, this this refers to moral purity with no blemish, with no sinful blot. Listen to where it's used. Hebrews 9, verse 14, it's used of Jesus Christ as the lamb for sacrifice. It says this about Christ. He offered himself without blemish to God. Same word. In 1 Peter 1.19, it says about Christ, quote, as a lamb unblemished and spotless. Okay? So speech of, it speaks of moral purity, sinless. The goal of election is that those whom he chose would be without sin, set apart and without sin. Well, who's that like? It's like Jesus. 
Before time, he chose that you would be like Jesus. Listen to Colossians 1.22. He has reconciled you through death in order to present you before him holy, blameless, and beyond reproach. Jude 24. Now to him who's able to keep you from stumbling, to make you stand in the presence. Those three usages are all in the presence of God. To stand in the presence of his glory, blameless with great joy. The goal of election then is for the elect to be in the very presence of God. This is God's purpose and will. His goal for the elect is that he wants you sinless in his presence, to be like Christ, fully sanctified, glorified. Okay, Because look at what it says in your verse 4 of Ephesians 1. The purpose that he chose is that we would be holy and blameless, and then the next phrase, before him, in his presence. Before him like you stand before a judge or stand before a king. Stand before one another. I am before you. See, there's a nearness. There's a presence. This is saying here that God chose you before the foundation of the world, that you, when you come into existence, finally would be in eternity in his presence with this character of holy and blameless, which is to be like Christ, to be glorified. Listen to 2 Thessalonians Oh, it's just, it's, it's amazing truth. It's too much for my oaky brain. It really is. I'm working hard to get this to you, man. I hope, this, I hope God uses this for your good. 2 Thessalonians 2.14, quote, Called you, God did, called you through our gospel that you may gain, attain to the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. To attain to the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. Romans 8.30 And these whom He predestined, He also called. And those whom He called, He also justified. And those whom He justified, He also what? Glorified. It's in the past tense, among other reasons, to show the certainty of it. In the mind of God, it's already happened because you know why? He chose before the foundation of the world that it would get there. So he can say you're glorified before you're even glorified because in his mind it's already happened. It's that certain. Listen to 1 Corinthians 15.49. I'm on on my last page. Of course, it's size 8 print. Just kidding. Um, (laughs) 1549, listen to this. Just as, which means in this same manner, that we have borne the image of the earthy, that's this image right here, it looks like Adam, first Adam. Just as that's true, we will also bear the image of the heavenly. Do you see what he's arguing? Just as you bear this image. Let me ask you this. How certain are you that you are bearing this image? Well, all you have to do is shake my hand, right? I'm real. This is us. Look in the mirror. That's who you are. Just as certain as you are of your 
reality, Paul is saying for the believer, you will eventually bear the image of the second Adam, of, of Jesus Christ. You will bear the image of the heavenly. You see, that's to be glorified. That's to be in his presence without sin. That's to be in his presence like Jesus Christ. Oh, my goodness. Listen to this. I'm almost done. Listen to this. This is stunning stuff. Romans 8.29 says it like this. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to become conformed to the image of his son. Okay? But it doesn't stop there. As glorious as that is. Listen to what it finishes. So that he would be the firstborn among many brethren. He's going to make us like him so that he is the firstborn over a lot of folks that are like him. That's why he chose you. That's the goal of election. That's the goal of election. We read it already, but listen again. John 17, 24, the high priestly prayer. Listen to what he says. Father, I desire. Stop there. If Jesus desires something, do you think the Father's going to hear it? You think the Father's going to answer it? I think so. Father, I desire that they also whom you have given me, which would be us, saints, believers, be with me, actually, literally with me in my presence, where place I am, so that they may see, gaze upon my glory, which you have given me. Not only will you be glorified and you be sinless in character and nature like Jesus Christ, as much as a creature can be like creator, you will be by God's power and grace in the very presence of God to gaze upon the glory of the Son of God. And that's the goal of election. How do you not worship Jesus Christ for that? How in the world? Do you not be taken up by the grace of God and love the doctrine of election? Don't let false teachers poison the truth of election. Don't let those who don't understand it poison it. This is the most glorious truth in your Bible because this is the doorway to every blessing that follows. If you deny election, then you have no other blessing from this text. I'm telling you. That's why he starts there. It opens it. That's that he's opened the lid of the treasure chest and he pulls out this diamond, and the first one of all of them is election. And even my precious. <laughs> right? That's truly precious. That little funny guy in that show, that wasn't so precious. <laughs> right? Oh, beloved, that's see, that's that, that's that's eternal truth. I want to go back to Ephesians and be finished here. Okay, please. Look at one last thing here. Ephesians 1, 4. He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world that we purpose would be set apart without sin like Christ before Him in His presence. This then is the beginning of the spiritual blessings that are equally ours in Christ. Every saint is a saint by God's unconditional sovereign choice. And every saint is a recipient of these special treasures. This is your possession. This is your family inheritance. Every saint will be in God's presence forever, glorified like Jesus Christ. 
forever. Praise Him for His gracious, precious choice of you. Praise Him. The other side, and I have to finish, is what about you? What about, are you in Christ? This is the question. Are you in Christ? Are you a saint by calling? Are you destined for glory? Are you even interested? Then come to Christ. Today is the day of salvation. And this precious Lord of ours, His arms are open wide. And He will deny no one at this moment who will come to Him in faith. In repentance and faith. Come to Christ. See His death on your behalf. See Him as raised from the dead for your resurrection. See His glorification as your glorification. Call on Him for forgiveness and trust Him for what He says. I will forgive you. I will cleanse you. Look to Him in faith. Look to Him in faith. And rejoice. Heavenly glory awaits you. Let's pray, can we? (laughs) Well, Lord, I thank you for your text. I thank you for the patience of your people. May you bless them, Father, with the truth. May you take this and bring us all together to a more clear and, and united understanding as to the doctrine of election. We praise you. We worship you for you have done us good. And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.